Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You've tuned in to Sci-Fi Fidelity, Episode 61, World Building. Welcome back to the podcast, everybody. It's Mike and Dave with you here with a discussion topic brought to us by our listener, Taltos, who has suggested topics for us in the past, and she's actually pretty good at this kind of thing. So we uh, definitely were not surprised when she came up with this best world building idea for us. Yeah, I guess when you think about it, each show has to have an in-depth plan for not only the characters and their backstories, but also the environment in which they operate. Yeah, and and I don't think it would probably surprise very many people to find that our discussion topic, which always has six choices, three from Dave and three from me, exemplars, if you will, of the topic at hand, it won't surprise many people to note that most of the ones on our list today are from space sci-fi, which tends to have some really good world building. Now, not all of them are, but you know, a lot of the ones that came up also in the discussion thread on our Facebook group were also space science fiction. So it's just interesting that that happens to be the case. Yeah. And certainly coming off our discussion of Game of Thrones, which is the quintessential world building example, which is a tough act to follow for sure. I I think we've got some good choices. And as we've said all along, these are not the six best. They're just six that really appeal to us for a variety of reasons. And I'm glad you brought up Game of Thrones because we didn't put that on our list. And I think we mostly picked ones that didn't have the advantage of pulling from a bunch of books with one exception. But I think when we get to that example, uh, you'll see why uh, it's a little bit different from Game of Thrones. But yeah, each of these were built from the ground up for the TV show. So I can't wait to get into this list. So Dave, why don't you start us off? Okay. And even before I get into my first, I I think the the other thing I just want to add that unlike Game of Thrones, these shows do not have huge budgets with which to work. (laughs) Yeah. So, all right. So my first show is Killjoys, which is a sci-fi network show that I also cover for Den of Geek on an episode by episode basis. And we're about to start the fifth and final season, July 19th. We just got that return date. Killjoys is part of what I think most of us refer to as sci-fi's space trio, along with The Expanse and Dark Matter. Killjoys is the lone one standing at this point. The other two are off the air, and I think uh, now Expanse has been picked up by Amazon, right? Right, but it's off of Sci-Fi Network. (laughs) Right, exactly. So now Killjoys created by michelle lavretta who you may know as i do from lost girl which in terms of world building certainly was a consideration for this list but killjoys follows the exploits of a three-person killjoy team and and killjoys are essentially bounty hunters 
that serve warrants across the quad. And I'll talk about the quad a little bit in a second. But the the whole idea about the warrant, they're, they're a little saying the warrant is all. And after you see what the killjoys are like and they they do have that traditional bounty hunter kind of feel to them that they play fast and loose with the rules but as we see them serving their warrants throughout the quad they're they're taken very seriously oh yeah for sure and the culture of the quad is kind of rough and tumble, at least in some areas of it. And I think that's what's key to world building is that if you're going to have different planets that are seen again and again, you have to make sure that each one has a distinct culture. And a lot of times they're serving these warrants in the ghetto of the solar system, right? Right, exactly. And, you know, you mentioned you've got to draw from different levels of the socioeconomic spectrum, and certainly Killjoys does that. We've got a four-planet and moon system known as the Quad, and it encompasses Kresh, Leith, Westerly, and Arkin, each of which has a certain standing in that socioeconomic system to which I referred. And, you know, Kresh, a lot of the aristocrats are from there. Leith is more of an agricultural setup. But as I was preparing for this, Pretty much everybody we encounter is a humanoid. Oh, that's true. Yeah. So on the one hand, I like that fact. Uh, Certainly when you're dealing with a limited budget, it it helps you to not have to worry about makeup on a, a weekly basis. So, you know, we basically got all humanoids, but we've got this aristocratic nine families who rule the system. And what I like is that they also have to contend with the RAC, which is the organization that that oversees the Killjoys. And they end up serving warrants even on the wealthy and powerful. And of course, because they are wealthy and powerful, they try to get around it as yeah. happens in real life. But a couple of the little items that I want to bring up in terms of the world building that that this idea of this green plasma that comes up, uh, I think probably in the second season, maybe even the third, but it's this neurobonder that allows, among other things, a connection between consciousness and minds. And we've got the whole hive mind scenario that's that's going on in the show. Uh, we've got a race known as the Hullen who possess superhuman capabilities and are all part of this hive mind. But this idea of the green plasma within this world it is just so fascinating. Something a lot more fun is Pre's bar. Yeah, bar is good in any show to pull forward, uh, you know, the culture, like, you know, even in a show like Winona Earp or any show that has the bar Lucifer, which we just talked about recently has a bar, of course. So that's really a good way to, uh, bring a bunch of different aspects of the cultures in the world building of the show together. Right. And it provides a setting for a lot of operation planning, but you know, just some good old fashioned bar fights, now, the other thing is Dutch's ship, which has an onboard AI, Lucy, and Lucy has a personality of her own, and we do spend a lot of time on board the ship. And again, what's fascinating is that Lucy's personality often drives the character's actions because she knows 
which buttons to push. It's as if she knows what motivates each of them. And then along with that is Anila's ship, this big, huge battle cruiser known as a Black Root ship from which she controls the hull. And, and I don't know about you, but it has a sort of a Star Wars feel to it once we're on the inside, especially the white uniforms. Yeah, and that actually is a good comparison for a discussion about world building, because I think if we were doing movies, Star Wars would be definitely high, 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 if not number one on the list of best world building in shows like this, because it doesn't come from any original source material like, say, the Harry Potter universe might. Right. So you're already working from zero with a story like Star Wars and Killjoys is the same way. Okay. All right. So you got a show I already dropped the name of. That's right. And The Expanse, you might think I'm cheating a little bit because it does come from a book series of the same name. But uh, I'll get into why that is a little bit different in this case. So the fourth season of The Expanse has moved to Amazon Prime Video this summer, but it is a colonized solar system and it's our solar system. So it's kind of like the quad of Killjoys, except it's Earth, Mars, and the moons of Jupiter and Saturn and so on, and the asteroids of the belt. So what's different about this, though, is that the writing team of Ty Frank and Daniel Abraham, who make up the pen name of James S.A. Corey, the author of the Expanse novels, came together by unconventional means because Frank was asked to develop an MMO in space. And that's a video game, a multi, a massively multiplayer online game. And I just want to read a quote from Ty Frank in a Rolling Stone magazine, because he says that the idea of creating these cultures for Mars, Earth, and the belt for an MMO didn't get very far. He says, quote, I think what happened was the people who had this idea suddenly realized that delivering a triple A MMO is like a hundred million dollar proposition. They sort of backed away quietly, but that meant I had never been paid for any of this, which meant it was all still mine. <laughs> so he took the notebooks full of material he had created and experimented with, and he turned it into a role-playing game, a tabletop game. And in one of the games he ran, his co-author, Daniel Abraham, was a player. And so together they decided to take the notes that Frank had made and build it into a novel, a series of novels and that is what became The Expanse. So because it has a kind of an unconventional way of coming about, there's no better way to build a world than to start with a video game. And I've played a lot of massively multiplayer online games in my time. And a lot of times you have to build such a rich story because the players can go anywhere in that world. Right. So even though it didn't end up being a game, you could see how you'd have to lay a pretty solid foundation. Right. And I think the thing I love the most about this world is that it is Earth, Mars, and the asteroid belt, as you mentioned, all which are really doable, even with our technology today. I mean, we can travel to Mars. Right. It's just a matter of time. And of course, the expanse does contract the time it takes to get between the planets. But even the novels does explain through the use of an Epstein drive how they're able to get to different places much faster than we would with our current technology, but still sub light speeds. So it's all very believable technology, but the cultures, like I said, with your killjoys discussion is really what's important to world building. 
And that's what's so rich in the expanse, because you've got Earth, which is the home of humanity. So they clearly consider themselves the most important, the home of the species, right? Everything right. done in space should serve Earth. And so the co corporations feel like they own everything. Right. And of course, then there are levels of importance that, as you implied, that Earth feels as if we're much more important, certainly than the belters who are the low level of, of the three. Right. And especially since there seems to be one world government. So there was a globalization movement that is kind of a hot topic in our time nowadays. But, you know, if you move to the future and, and you've taken it as an assumption, then perhaps it's believable that they would feel that way. But also at some time in the past, before the Expanse story gets going, Mars has been colonized. Now it's not that far along, but because the planet is so difficult to terraform, it kind of breeds a very strong breed of survivalist humans who do everything by a strict set of rules. And this causes them to rise in military strength and discipline. And you can see that in their warships. You can see that in the character of Bobby Draper, maybe a little bit more so than our resident Martian pilot, Alex Kamal, but certainly Bobby Draper exhibits the Martian Marine discipline and toughness that is basically the stereotype for your typical Martian in this series. Right. And with all of that in the background, the disillusionment that different characters come to deal with, again, is just such a rich storytelling idea. And I think most of the audience probably can really get behind the belt, not just because they have such great characters like Naomi Nagata to root for, but also just because, you know, they're the underdog. They're the working class. They work with what they have. They don't try to adapt it to fit life on Earth as the Earthers would do. And it's a cultural mixture. I mean, there's a certain amount of cultural mixing on on Mars as well. But with the belt, you've got this, you know, patois language that's very Creole in nature. And also, they can't really do this in the TV show, but, you know, they have long limbs based on the lower gravity, and they can't really even return to gravity in many cases because it would kill them. So all these different pressures and needs and wants creates three very distinct cultures. And so when you have a story, a TV show, that's really about the conflict between these groups, it really creates a very, very rich world to build off of and to create stories from. All right, cool. All right, well, let's go ahead and return to Earth for the next few minutes. And that is another sci-fi show, Van Helsing, whose fourth season is about to air this fall. And it is a post-apocalyptic environmental natural disaster setup. Yeah, and that's why this kind of surprises me that you picked this one, because, you know, you don't usually see the level of world building with a post-apocalypse, except if they're traveling around from place to place. Is that the case with this show? Well, it is the case, and, and they're more or less confined to the Pacific Northwest, but I, I love the background. So in other words, one of the volcanoes, I don't believe it's ever mentioned, so whether it's Mount St. Helens, we don't really know, but it has erupted to the extent that the sun is more or less blotted out enough that the vampires who have been hiding in the background for low these many years are now able 
to emerge from the shadows and feast on unprepared humans. Yeah, I think it was uh, some big giant caldera under the Yellowstone Park, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, you're right. You're right. That's <laughs> right. 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 And the event is known as the Rising. And I don't remember necessarily how that was chosen, but it doesn't take long for society to break down. And we, we learn early on that this new world order contains multiple levels of vampires. Oh, here we go. So this is where the world building comes in. <laughs> yes. We've got ones who were turned before the rising, like Dimitri, who is, I think, two or three hundred years old. And, and he's trying to forge an empire. And, you know, again, he's been lurking in the shadows for all of this time, and now he's trying to put together an army to take control. But, but of course, he's not alone. Uh, we've got feeders and ferals who are low-level vampires, often resorting to feeding from animals. And one of the things we see in this world is that the more you feed on animals, the more you're going to become feral in nature. So... Uh, human blood is the way to go if you want to remain in, in the upper social class of this world. And, and we don't really talk too much about finances. There, there doesn't seem to be any kind of a money system in this world. Well, that's kind of cool. I mean, yeah, I think that would be a, a nice little factor to to bring into a world building discussion. But I don't think we see anything like this anywhere else because obviously this has undertones of the walking dead with their zombies and and other post-apocalypse that are built on some kind of invasion but we don't really see the levels of vampire culture or zombie culture if you will the way we see it here in van helsing exactly and we see it in many different segments and i'm going to mention one of them in a few minutes but i'd be remiss if i didn't bring up vanessa helsing the main character the reluctant savior of mankind the quintessential anti-hero i just love her to death but she's navigating this new world in search of her daughter and once we meet her and we learn pretty quickly that she's important. We're not sure exactly how. And, you know, unlike Killjoys, which pretty much just sticks with humanoids so they don't have to mess around with that makeup, Van Helsing has to do a lot with the different vampires they have. We've got a group known as the Sisterhood, who is an exiled vampire sect that may, in fact, be vampire hunters since they serve the Lord. And that's a fascinating aspect of this world because clearly they are vampires. They, they do have vampire-like qualities, but there's something about their end game, which we're not exactly sure. It kind of uh, reminds it's, – it's kind of a weird thing here. I'm going off on a tangent a bit, but it almost seems like the idea of the sisterhood being vampire hunters – is kind of a nod to Simon Barry, who is no longer executive producing Van Helsing, but he's moved on to a new show called Warrior Nuns. <laughs> right. And so I see a very strange parallel there. Anyway. <laughs> right. Now, you know, I, I mentioned Vanessa Helsing, and along the way, she learns about a family history that she really had no idea existed, and it loosely plays on the traditional Abraham Van Helsing vampire tale from 
Bram Stoker's Dracula. She meets her twin sister that she didn't know she had, Scarlett Harker, connect with some past relatives. And then, of course, what apocalyptic tale would be complete without some sort of a shadowy government, maybe... (laughs) shadow organization and that's called black tech b-l-a-k-t-e-k and they're engaged in vampire research that might have connection to the military it's not exactly clear but we do get a lot of black helicopters when we're whenever we're dealing with van helsing so you know it really is a rich environment you know there are a, a lot of these sub vampire groups that have their own social system and social hierarchy going on and it's just really a fascinating show. All right. And I think that's a great example and, and sort of broke up the, the space obsession that some of our other choices have. So I'm glad you brought that into it. And I know you're going to bring up another one later that doesn't fit the space mold either. So why don't we go ahead and take a quick break at this point. And when we come back, we'll go into some of the tough choices we had to make to narrow this list down because there are so many great examples And I've got two more and Dave's got another one to share as well. So we'll be right back after this break. All right, well, let's go into the vault a little bit here, Dave. We've talked about some currently airing shows, but I got a couple that aren't on the air anymore. And I'll start off with Babylon 5, which, of course, many listeners will remember aired in the late 90s. There were five seasons. And this was another galactic space culture. And people might think, well, if you're going to include this, why don't you include Star Trek, which obviously set the stage for a show like Babylon 5 and many others of the time, like Andromeda and others. But I think what made this one unique was at the time, it was actually planned as a five-year saga from J. Michael Straczynski, with each episode being a chapter in the larger tale. Now, I think that may seem fairly common nowadays. Everyone says now, oh, we've got a five-year plan. This show is built to last for seven seasons or whatever. And a lot of times interviewers will ask showrunners that question. But I feel like in my memory anyway, I was in college when Babylon 5 came out and everyone was talking about how cool it was that the showrunner had a five-year plan and was going to actually end it on his terms. This was something just was unheard of at the time. So I think that's what makes this one unique and, and a good candidate for the list. Well, and especially that he had a network behind him, not only financially, but artistically, uh, that he had the confidence he was actually going to get those five seasons. Yeah, and they did spend a fair chunk of money on the hundred or so episodes that were produced. So, you know, definitely something that kind of set the stage for what people would try to do with a skeleton of a plan for genre shows in particular. But for those who don't know, Babylon 5 obviously had one of the richer cultures, one of the richer world-building aspects because of the cultures that were present in the show. The main ones, of course, being the humans, the Narn, the Centauri, the Minbari, and the Vorlons. And there were also three different languages spoken on the station, English and Satari were obviously the dominant cultures, but also Interlac, which was kind of like a something that everyone could speak as a common language, even between the major and lesser known aliens out there. And I think what Babylon 5 really had to do that 
was not so much present in Star Trek or even certainly Killjoys and The Expanse, which we mentioned was mostly humanoid, is bring in so many aliens, almost to the degree that Star Wars did. You mentioned that earlier, you know, the cantina scene. That's kind of like what Babylon 5 was like. Right. Well, you know, of the six shows we're talking about, Babylon 5 is the only one I've not seen the entire run. And in fact, I've only seen a few episodes, so I have a pretty good feel for it. But did they do like Star Trek really bringing in and examining social issues of the time? I mean, they kind of did, but I think what mostly they were trying to do was work with their own political structures and talk about, you know, wartime and and trying to figure out what the humans on Babylon 5 would want versus what the alliance would want, which was the governing body. It's kind of like uh, the other example I'm about to give where, you know, the humans that we're dealing with as our main characters were not necessarily on board with what the culture of earth in general was trying to do. And in fact, the station was built Babylon five, that is in the aftermath of several major interspecies wars as kind of a neutral ground for galactic diplomacy and trade. So even though sometimes the captain was at odds with even his own, you know, human government, you know, there was a sense that, we're all trying to get along here, you know? So I guess in that sense, it was kind of a social issue type thing. And there certainly was a lot of religion too, interestingly enough, that made it a little bit more philosophical, I guess. And that's cool. I I love when these science fiction shows give us a different take on religion. I mean, Battlestar Galactica certainly did. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great example too. I think Babylon Fiverr and Battlestar Galactica are in the same vein from that point of view. But there were lots of references to old wars, which I think kind of gave some depth to the world building because they weren't present. They just referred to them. So you might hear about the ancient culture known as the first ones, which was considered to be the first race to gain sentience in the galaxy. So you get this sense of the scale of time that's been going on with this because it just really gave you a sense that everything that these characters are doing and the decisions that are being made are based on years and years of history. And obviously that's a big part of it. And I do want to mention because June seems to be Neil Gaiman month with our discussions of Lucifer and and good omens. There was a race in Babylon five called the game, which was named after Neil Gaiman. He then went on to write the episode known as day of the dead. But I thought that was an interesting bit of trivia that came up in my research (laughs) to fit with the June theme of Neil Gaiman. All right. Well, I'm going to end with a show that uh, I often say is my favorite show currently airing as well as the show that I can't believe more people aren't watching. And that said the hundred which airs on the cw is in the midst of its sixth season it's already been renewed for a seventh and i wonder if the cw somehow puts people off which you know when you got shows like arrow and the flash why would it you know for genre fans well in that sense the hundred is a bit of an aberration for that network (laughs) right so in the hundred we've got the post-apocalyptic aftermath of a nuclear war on earth and 
The one thing about The 100, it reinvents itself as much as any show that I've seen. The show starts with an end of the human race event that leaves the members of space stations that are already in the air as the only human survivors, of course, not unlike Battlestar Galactica, or so they think that they're the (laughs) only survivors because they've been up there now 90 years, resources are running out, and the decisions is made to send 100 young teenage criminals to Earth basically to learn whether or not it's habitable. So in other words, we're just throwing these 100 kids down there If they live, okay, then maybe we can go. If they die, we need to wait a little bit longer. And that's what's interesting about the beginning of this series is that you think you're getting a specific kind of show, uh, kind of got a space feel to it, but then the world building doesn't come into play until they get down there. (laughs) Right, exactly. And we don't see the early days of space station life it's pretty much we've we've reached the end uh, you know i forget 93 years or whatever it is and you know we get little snippets of what life was like on the space station before that but the fact that we've got generations of individuals that know nothing other than the space station is certainly fascinating but one of the things i love is the draconian measures necessary to extend the human race's survival as parts on the space station wear out food water air run short and i guess one of the things that i always preach is that you know we we can solve world problems you're just not going to like how we have to do it and on the space station i do like the fact that they realize difficult choices have to be made if we're going to survive Oh, and so some of them might be smacking of fascism <laughs> or it, yes, or at least no uh, freedom of this or that, not a whole lot of rights. Right. And, and if you are a space science fiction fan, you understand the concept of spacing someone. And that is certainly used as a punishment because if somebody has committed a serious enough crime, why are we going to waste precious resources keeping them alive in a prison? Well, and it's interesting that that culture does carry across from season one into the Sky Crew as they end up on Earth. There are certain things that they couldn't let go of. But what I find the most interesting is that one of the draconian rules you're talking about is the one child rule, where each family is only able to have one kid. And if you have more, that's just greedy, right? Right. And Octavia is one of the main characters who was hidden on the space station for so long. And yet even this far into the series, six seasons in, we still get references to Octavia as the one that wasn't supposed to be. Right. I mean, certainly the character that she's evolved into has to be in part a byproduct of her experiences because, you know, what is she 16 when the series starts? So she's been living in the floorboards her entire life but once this group of 100 kids are on the ground and they learn that earth is in fact habitable we also learn that there are humans that survive 
in pockets and and in some cases even thrived within the parameters of things that they had to contend with. But we've got things like the grounders who are, you know, this Mad Max kind of group <laughs> that, that lives the very almost old fashioned sense of right and wrong. They don't really have any technology to speak of, but then we've got Mount weather, which is actually a real place. I think it's in West Virginia, you know, one of these massive underground bunkers that uh, the important people have been living in for 93 years. And like the space station, they've had people that know nothing other than the interior of mount weather and of course they have a lot more luxuries you know some of their their supplies aren't running out to the extent that they were up on the space station but now our heroes if if you will are contending with all of these different social groups and it really is a tale of survival and these are a hundred kids that have lived their entire lives under these draconian measures. And, you know, one of the main characters, Clark, who evolves into a leader by default, is often tasked with making those difficult decisions. Do I sacrifice 10 so that 100 might live? Well, I find it interesting, though, that you're concentrating on the Sky Crew and even Mount Weather to a certain extent, because the grounders do have a bunch of different tribes that would qualify for a deeper world building. But I think actually the hundred probably could have stood to develop those different crews a little bit more and differentiate them. And they did to a certain extent, there were certain tribes, certainly the, what was the one from the North, the ice crew, you know, there was some differentiation of cultures between the different grounder tribes, but I kind of would have liked to seen a little bit more of that. But I guess it's a different show altogether now in season six, correct? <laughs> oh, well, right. And, and we also have the religious aspect that. Oh, that's true. Yeah. That, that comes out of the commander. And of course, we later learn that that the commander, it's actually technology related. But, you know, now we learn that they destroyed Earth again. <laughs> so now they have to flee and they've traveled to another planet to start anew and hopefully not make the same mistakes that they've made previously. And they encounter a group that's already established itself. They've got this religious cult like deal going on. And it's just really another fascinating development in the life of sky crew. Who's got to come up with another catchy name now. Yeah, well, especially since they've got members now that were from the grounder element. And yeah, it's it's a whole different story now. And it makes you wonder where they're going in season seven, because by the time this podcast releases, I think we'll be gearing up for the finale. So <laughs> it'll be interesting to see what that brings us. Maybe maybe our listeners already know by now. But did you hear the big news about Bellark? Yes, I did. What a shock that was. Now, of course, like I said, this will probably be old news to our podcast listeners by now. But Dave and I, in the context of when we're recording this, just found out that they've been keeping it secret and actually got married. Uh, so Bellark is now a true and real couple. Yes. Yeah, so and now we'll have to look for all the subtext <laughs> in the show. But <laughs> yeah. uh, All right. So what are you going to finish up with? Well, perhaps it's no surprise, but Firefly had such a rich world building going in its single season, you have to wonder 
where they could have taken it had they had more time other than their single season in 2002, 2002, 2003. So obviously Firefly shouldn't need much explanation, but if you haven't seen the show or just as a reminder, Firefly follows the crew of the Serenity, but there are details that are doled out in their journeys around the verse. Do they call the solar system the verse or do they refer to the verse as the greater universe? I can never remember how that term was used, but it was a cool term to distinguish their, uh, you know, references from other space shows. I think it's just really the, the, the world at large, not necessarily their own system. Yeah. Yeah. But so details were doled out over the course of the series that humanity had moved on from what they referred to as earth that was because of some sort of overpopulation problem. It's never really made specific, but what we do know and what, kind of informs the world building of Firefly is that the only superpowers that were still around to finance these generation ships that took them to the new system that they're in now were the United States and China, which kind of caused this really cool fusing of the two cultures here in this system. And so it would come across every now and then they would curse in Chinese or say a phrase in Chinese. They mostly spoke English, but what a cool thing to do and kind of ahead of its time, if you think about it. Well, and we also see it in the wardrobe and I, God, I'm, I'm blanking on her name now. The, the, uh, Marina Baccarin. Yes. Her character. <laughs> um, a lot of her clothing had that Asian feel to it. Yeah, it certainly did. So I liked the fact that they used that, even though it's a familiar culture to us, using it in space, especially considering Firefly was really billed as a space Western, if you think about it, which, I mean, world building from that standpoint alone, making it a Western was just genius on the part of Joss Whedon. So because they are working with gravity drives rather than faster than light drives, similar to the Expanse, they only have a certain number of worlds that they can visit. But this particular system that they're in does have dozens of planets and hundreds of moons, which are specifically referred to at some point during that first season. And they're all being terraformed as much as possible by the Alliance, which is this unifying governing body, but they're not necessarily the good guys. They're a bit tyrannical in their way, militaristic. It almost feels like a military-led uh, government. Didn't did you get that feel? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself because I know you want to talk about the Western feel that that is just so integral to the show. Well, yeah, I think that's what gives it its unique flavor. And part of the way they do that is by making the inner planets uh, richer and more prosperous but then the outer planets along the fringe of the solar system remain these dry, dusty, mostly lawless planets, which allows that Western feel to be kind of in the middle of the desert or out West in the Dust Bowl, that kind of thing. But of course, it also comes from the way that the characters talk, which does have kind of a Western draw to it as well. So just a genius way to give it that feel without being sort of on the nose about it. Well, right. And, and this is a group of really anti-heroes that are just trying to make a living. They're just trying to scratch out an existence on the fringes. And if they break a law or two, okay. And, and I think what we all love is that whenever they're forced to make 
an ethical or moral decision, they always do the right thing. It might be a little reluctant, but they do the right thing. <laughs> right. And I think that was kind of something that the network tried to kind of push after the pilot was to make Mal a little bit more <laughs> likable because he was quite harsh in the pilot. So, but then there was the one thing that could have been developed more, I feel, if they had given more seasons to the show. And that's the Reavers, because that's part of the culture of this solar system. There are humanities, uh, you know, even less desired members. They're farther out even than the outer planets, mostly just roaming space in these tin cans that they've scavenged together. And not only are their ships kind of Frankenstein monsters, the humans themselves are Frankenstein monsters and their outfits are, are patchwork and everything like that because they self-mutilate, they're violent cannibals. And then there's that famous line from Zoe where she says, if they take the ship, they'll rape us to death, eat our flesh, and sew our skins into their clothing. And if we're very, very lucky, they'll do it in that order. <laughs> and that line sort of lives on in infamy. But, you know, you would have loved to have seen maybe more of the Reavers and maybe even inform what their culture was like, if they had one, certainly. It might have been more like, I mentioned, the zombies and the Walking Dead rather than the vampires in Van Helsing. But we'll never know. <laughs> uh, I don't know if, if there are more frightening creatures in all of sci-fi than the Reavers. Yeah, they're pretty pretty brutal. Maybe they're the most frightening because we never really got a chance to see more of them to destroy the illusion. But yeah, Firefly, I mean, obviously, every time I start talking about Firefly, the regret starts bubbling up in my chest. So can't spend too much time on that show. But obviously, these shows had a lot of world building. Uh, we want to go ahead now and toss it over to the listeners to talk about what they had as their favorite choices amongst the genre television universe to tell us which ones they felt had really good world building going on. And we'll start off with David who contributed the choices of Babylon five and game of Thrones, but specified only seasons one through four in both. A lot of background information was given without it being immediately required for the story. I'd contrast this with alien of the week shows where these elements are introduced, but they are almost always there to drive plot. The Expanse does quite a good job, too, as did Defiance. I totally wish I had included Defiance on my list. I'm, I'm kicking myself that I didn't uh, pick that one, but I'm glad people brought that up on the Facebook group. Also, probably Battlestar Galactica, although I thought it started to concentrate far too much on religions, so I'm not sure that was always a good thing. Now, Faith says... I think Supernatural's built a rich world over its multitude of seasons. The monster's traits and how to fight them is extremely consistent, and the portrayal of heaven and hell is fascinating. Yeah, it's just one of those shows that at this point is so daunting to even get started. I've seen a few episodes, but uh, yeah, great choice, Faith. And Christopher said, I may be biased, but I think Continuum created a spectacular world, rich with detail, characters, and moral questions between two different eras. You may be biased, too. Altered Carbon, great choice, might be one of the best examples of building something original that felt like it had all the layers and complexity a real society would. It was totally foreign to our own, yet still had familiar moral dilemmas and human struggles that took on new twists because the world in which they existed was so different from our own. Now, Joe says Battlestar Galactica, the reboot, developed the human culture in the fleet and some in the colonies, as well as the Cylon culture more than expected. 
Unlike Game of Thrones, Altered Carbon, Expanse, and other shows based on books, they had to develop most of it from scratch, and the 1979 show wasn't very deep. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I love the Cylon culture, especially the religious uh, overtones and undertones. And Linda said, now we have five seasons, we can say Black Mirror has built a pretty solid world for its inhabitants. Some of it is very subtle, so it leaves a lot to the imagination. All right, we'll, we'll check out that theory next week when we talk about Black Mirror, Linda. Talto says, while I find the world building in both The Expanse and The Magicians quite interesting, I'm going to go with Killjoys, as it wasn't based on an existing property. The quad, the company, the nine, the rack, the cast system all combined to create a unique world. We also get details about religion, politics, technology, holidays, diseases, weather phenomenon. It actually has a lot of similarities to Firefly, with the latter having much closer ties to Earth, being based on a world combining Chinese and American cultures. And Carolyn said, Most recently, I think Defiance and The Expanse created a deeply cultured series. Lots of little things along with the big storylines. Babylon 5 definitely did, as did Continuum. Have to agree with Christopher there. Been doing a Farscape rewatch, and it's a great one too. And then Allie chose Farscape and Star Trek Voyager. She says, They both have multi-dimensional characters of every race and creed, as well as vivid landscapes. And Farscape is one of those shows that I came to very late in the party, binged it over the course of about a year, and oh, just just wonderful. All right, thanks, as always, to those of you who have participated in the Facebook group. Whenever we have a discussion topic, you want to keep an eye out for that question that shows up in the Facebook group, because we will share your answers here on the podcast whenever you are able to contribute that. So thanks so much to those of you who did that. So Dave, what do we have coming up at the very end of the month here as kind of our fifth week bonus topic <laughs> for June? All right, Mike, we're going to take a look at season five of the Netflix anthology series, Black Mirror. And since it's only three episodes this time around, we're going to each take a look at one. We're going to examine the first and the last episode. Right. And so if you haven't seen that series, definitely check it out. Even if you haven't seen the first seasons of Black Mirror, it doesn't matter. You know, you can just check out season five. And of course, by that time, you'll have had plenty of time to see it because it's been out for quite some time now. But it's definitely garnering a lot of attention on the Den of Geek website. So we hope you'll join us for that discussion. But that's going to be it for this episode of Sci-Fi Fidelity. Keep the discussion going on social media. You can follow Den of Geek on Twitter and Facebook at Den of Geek US. And we are at Sci-Fi Fidelity. And in the meantime, we'd love it if you could rate and review the podcast wherever you access it. Be sure to send us your suggestions for future topics on social media or via email to sci-fi fidelity at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week.